0: today finds Superman off in the Galapagos Islands, fighting the diabolical Dr. Spectro. Meanwhile, back in Metropolis, at the Daily Planet.
1: Oh, morning, Lois. Hi, Jimmy.
2: Hey, Lois. You know that story I've been working on about Superman's secret identity? Well, I've got a theory. Have you ever seen Clark and Superman in the same place together?
0: Oh, Jimmy, this old routine? You really think mild-mannered Clark Kent is Superman? Well? Okay, Jimmy, can the guy you know named Superman fly?
2: Sure! Leaps tall buildings in a single bound. Now, can Clark Kent fly? Well, no. He's as clumsy as an ox. Just last week, I saw him trip over his own briefcase. Clark couldn't jumpstart a car, let alone jump over a building.
0: So, if the guy you know named Superman can fly, and the guy you know named Clark Kent can't fly, how can they be the same person? Well,
2: uh, I mean...
0: Will Jimmy Olsen discover our hero's secret identity? Do the names Clark Kent and Superman refer to the same person or not? Maybe we'll find out on today's show!
2: Hey everyone, welcome to You've Got It All Wrong, a philosophy podcast for handsome people like you. I'm Chad Allen. I'm Paco
1: Allen. And I'm America's sweetheart, Mark Sanders.
2: Hey guys, I didn't know that the Superman radio plays covered such lofty material.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, they were... They were known for covering the great philosophical debates,
2: and I didn't know Lois Lane is like an amazing, uh, a very astute philosopher and observer of the world.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it just shows how little you paid attention when we listened to those as kids.
2: <laughs> well, maybe that's where we, maybe that's where we learned all of this uh, philosophy stuff that we know so much about.
1: Yeah, like Superman esen- essentially was a uh, uh, Uberman. I knew somebody was going to do this. I knew somebody was try- going to try to go <laughs> to the
2: to the Nietzsche Ubermensch thing right away. But let, let, let's not do this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's stick with Superman. Can we do that? Yes, please. Okay. That uh, story that we just uh, heard uh, Lois Lane and, and Jimmy Olsen recount um, is a... A paraphrasing, uh, believe it or not, listeners, of a thought experiment uh, developed by the German philosopher uh, Gottlob Frege, who lived from 1848 to 1925. And in in, in 1892, he wrote this paper called Sense and Reference. And it contains a thought experiment um, very similar, coincidentally, uh, to the one uh, acted out on that uh, Superman radio play. I, I don't Know if Frege got a writing credit for that, but he should have. Um, so anyway, um, Frege uh, was a super prolific philosopher. He's considered one of the founders of analytic philosophy. His work had a huge influence on Russell and Wittgenstein, um, who sort of loom large as the as the early minds of of analytic philosophy in the twentieth century. Um, He wasn't that um, well known during his lifetime and was really sort of um, his thinking was sort of brought to the fore by Russell. So he he wrote a lot about mathematics and logic, um, and he also wrote about the philosophy of language. Um, And the sort of question that he's trying to get at with that thought experiment is one of the central questions in the philosophy of language, which is um, what do you names mean? Um, And that. It might sound like a simple question or like a question that doesn't really even need answering, but I promise um, that we'll make it super complicated uh, in the the course of this episode. Um, and just as a, I guess as just a note before we kick off the conversation, um, we're going to talk a lot about names and what names mean and for the purposes of this discussion when we say name we mean like a proper noun like mark or aristotle or clark kent um we're not we're going to think of those as names for the purposes of this discussion
3: and, and and since this is kind of like a a central piece or a kind of a foundational piece to the philosophy of language do we just want to kind of set up what the philosophy of language is and kind of how how that differentiates from some of the other um, kind of disciplines within philosophy.
2: I mean, we, I don't, do you have something to say about that or uh, I don't well, know?
3: Well, I mean, I guess like as far as I understand it, kind of the philosophy of language is about trying to dissect the meaning of language in order to gain knowledge purely through the analysis of language as opposed to, through some other means. So it's kind of like it's the idea that you can learn things just from you can gain knowledge just from analyzing language and what words mean, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's one strand of thinking that comes out of the philosophy of language. I would say that that's sort of what you're describing is is kind of how I think of as it's kind of how I think of analytic philosophy in general, which is sort of the contemporary Anglo-American 20th and 21st century uh, f- philosophical paradigm. But I think more generally, you could say that philosophy of language is is just an attempt to understand like how words work and like how language relates to the world. Um, and, and that's something we're going to talk about in more detail today. But I, I think that's kind of how I would sum up philosophy of language is just like, hey, we're we're making all of these statements about the world and we should probably think about like what the words that we're using mean and how they relate to that world. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, so names or or proper nouns are, you know, obviously kind of central to how language works in particular. um, You know, when you're trying to understand how language kind of, relates to relates to the to the world around us and and how those words actually describe that world and so um, the sort of like I guess most simple or sort of straightforward view or maybe the the view that a lot of us would kind of take without um, really spending a lot of time thinking about this topic is is also a very uh, popular point of view um, in the history of philosophy and that. The moniker for this point of view gets attached to John Stuart Mill. He didn't necessarily write a whole lot about the philosophy of language, but um, he did write a little bit. Um, and so this view, there, there's a view that's named for him called millionism. His followers were called millionaires? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am a millionaire. <laughs> you may not have known this about me. So so millionism is essentially um, the, the view that the entire meaning of a name or a proper noun is just the thing in the world that it refers to. So it's almost like saying that names are sort of attached to things or names point at things. And so when I say Mark, like the full uh, meaning of that word is just sort of this arrangement of matter, human shaped matter sitting next to me in the chair. Right the meaning
3: of the word is really encompassed in the actual thing itself and the name is like you said just just a pointer it's just a thing that points at and lets you know the specific thing that you're talking about but the all the qualities and the definition of that thing are contained not in the not in the name, which just points at the thing, but in the actual thing itself.
2: Yeah, I had kind of have this goofy picture in my head of like, you know, people are walking around and there's sort of like a a little like flag or a, a a tag or a note attached to them that says like Mark or Clark Kent, and like yeah, that's like the whole meaning of the of the name is just like this thing that it's pointing to. And there's like so the technical term is referent.
3: We're all Sims or something like that. Yeah. With a little bubble above our head.
1: Speaking Simlish.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're just like Sims. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so there's just a little bubble above your head that says Paco. And so if you want to know what Paco means, it's just the thing that's sitting underneath that bubble. And that's like, that's it. Like, that's the meaning of the name Paco. You know, and that seems like a pretty good explanation of how names work. I mean, you know, when I'm walking around and I like, I, I see Paco, um, you know, and I, I, somebody says like, Hey, where's Paco? Like I, I point to Paco and you know, that's kind of like, that's it. That's what the name means. But you know what Lois Lane was trying to tell us at the top of the show is that there's actually a little bit of a problem with that. And that problem is first really kind of brought to us again in this paper that I referenced earlier, this paper from 1892 by Frege, um, called sense and reference. And so he says, well, think about it for a minute so we've got this name, Superman, and if that name is just a pointer to this human-shaped arrangement of matter that's currently in the Galapagos fighting Dr. Spectro...
3: Or a Kryptonian arrangement of matter. <laughs> For example, <laughs>
2: yes. <laughs> I mean, I, um, I
3: guess it de- it depends on, on what you mean by human, right? I mean, in
1: some way, isn't Superman human? He's an American. Does that count? <laughs>
2: and that's all that really matters I think he
3: actually rejects his American heritage uh, in in the comic books I think in like 2014
1: oh really? proud immigrant like myself can you give us like a a book
2: an issue?
3: I don't remember the issue number we'll put it in the show notes but I think he rejects his his American heritage and and proclaims that he's a a citizen of earth as opposed to uh, a citizen of a particular country
2: now that's so lame I think 2014 was like a little late for that sentiment. In Red Son, he was definitely a Russian.
3: Uh, also, uh, Doctor Doctor Spectro. Yeah. Anybody interested in what his powers are?
2: No. Okay.
3: Yeah. yeah let's hear it. Well, Doctor Spectro started out as Doctor Tom Emery, uh, and and he he, he <laughs> well, a good name a s- upgrade. <laughs> yeah, he he invented a <laughs> series of of prisms that he thought could could alter human emotions uh-huh uh but then he was kidnapped by this criminal gang, and they were gonna force him to pr- to help them uh, rob a bank and when he yeah. refused they they threw him into his his emotion altering prism machine <laughs> uh which was a bad idea because it yeah. gave him superpowers the superpowers of controlling human emotions <laughs> <laughs> uh and he 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 wore an awesome uh kind of Polka dotted uh, spandex oh, really? uh, costume, right? Uh, which has which 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 has been criticized as possibly uh, the worst supervillain costume uh, ever created.
2: Criticized by whom?
3: Uh, lots of
2: nerds. <laughs> oh, really? Like, I want to see the citation <laughs> on that. <laughs> is that going to be in the show notes? Like the costume? Oh yeah. Uh, w- oh yeah. And the critiques? Oh, for sure. Like, is there a listicle somewhere of like worst? super villain costumes ever and he's at the top like on buzzfeed uh, i'm looking at i'm going to yeah, BuzzFeed there's, right
3: there's now. there's that listicle and then and then i don't know maybe a listicle of of worst dc comic supervillains maybe we'll get a little bit more of that later
2: <laughs> um you know i wish we could actually do some fucking philosophy on this show i don't even remember <laughs> i don't even remember where i was
1: <laughs> do you remember when this show used to be about
2: philosophy <laughs> no no, i don't I don't remember that I it's one of my goals in life is to make this show about philosophy um yeah okay, so frege so-
3: wrote frege wrote some stuff about how uh there was the that names were more than just pointers to globs of matter and that the right. that there was more than more to names than just pointing at things that had all of the meaning contained within themselves.
2: Right. So and his his example, um, at least sort of his, his, the, the version of his example that, that we're using um, is that you've got these two names, um, Superman and Clark Kent, which apparently refer to the same chunk of matter. Right. So um, if we're going to figure out where we're going to put that little uh, flag or little bubble that says Clark Kent, we're going to put it over the same glob of matter that we're going to put that little flag, um, uh, that says Superman. Um, and so, but now we've got this weird thing where if like the entire meaning of the name is just like that glob of matter, then it, how can it possibly be a surprise to Jimmy Olsen that, that Superman and Clark Kent are the same person? Because if the entire meaning of Superman is just like that blob of matter, Then when Jimmy Olsen says Superman, it can't mean anything else than that blob of matter, which is the same blob of matter that we're referring to when we say Clark Kent. And so what Frege is trying to tell us is that, yes, it's true. Words uh, refer to things in the world. And that's why the paper is called Sense and Reference, because he does think it's true that there is this relationship between the word and what's called in philosophy the referent. So he does believe in this reference relationship but he says there's another thing that 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 names or proper nouns have two dimensions to them so one is the reference dimension and then there's this other um dimension of sense um which he talks about is like the way that something presents us itself to us or the way that it's given to us and so that's sort of gives us a clue to start to understand how Superman and Clark Kent can have the same referent but mean different things. So, uh, so Superman uh, re- refers to this glob of matter, but Superman also presents himself to us in a different way than than Clark Kent does, right? So Superman is presented in spandex and spandex yes um and clark kent is probably wearing some uh well probably a wool blend in the original uh mm-hmm. comics yeah. uh-huh. i think so yeah. and
3: and and uh you know uh a, a nice
2: fedora and some yeah some thick rim glasses right like a real felt fedora and some mm-hmm. bakelite uh glasses yeah and you know superman is also sort of like we have this sense of Superman as someone who can fly, someone who can leap tall buildings, uh, someone who can fly around the earth backwards and change.
3: Don't don't, don't start (laughs) this. Don't start this. We're going to get all kinds of mail. Is
1: that non-canonical? Hey, hey, it's in the movie.
3: We're going to get all kinds of mail about whether Superman was flying around the earth so fast that he was reversing the earth's, spin on its axis or whether he was just flying so fast that he was flying faster than the speed of light and traveling back in time
2: and Oh, well, definitely ahead. that's what he was doing.
3: Yeah, well, no, I mean wasn't definitely, spinning the definitely, earth definitely backwards.
2: Chad. <laughs> Look, I'll answer all I'll answer all of the mail on this topic Okay, direct all of, um, direct
3: all of your Superman spun the earth backwards <laughs> to reverse time mail to
2: Chad At Chad Allen on Twitter Um, and Clark Kent is sort of presented to us or given to us, use Frege's words, you know, as this guy who's a reporter and is kind of a square and like, you know, uh, as Jimmy Olsen would say, apparently, although I'd never heard this uh, canonical episode until today, uh, Jimmy Olsen would say that he couldn't jumpstart a car, let alone jump over a building. So now you've got this, now you've got an explanation for sort of how do Superman and Clark Kent have, how do those names have different meanings, even though they have the same referent or the same sort of glob of matter that they point to um, in the world.
3: Right. Like if you take, if you take those two descriptions, the description of Superman and the description of Clark Kent in our Sims analogy, th- those two bubbles with those two descriptions are pointing at the same thing. They're pointing at the same glob of matter.
2: Right. Exactly. So we've got these two words; they have the same referent, and and Frege again like believes in reference. So he's like, yes, they have the same referent, but the words also have this other thing; they have a sense, um, which which is you know this this sort of greater ma- contextual uh, kind of meaning, and that idea gets picked up by Russell and Wittgenstein, and it becomes a theory of naming called the descriptivist theory of naming. And we won't get into that today, but um, you know, Russell and and Wittgenstein sort of, sort of uh, carry the torch for Frege's view of how names work. And they actually eventually drop the, the belief that names actually refer to things in the world. And, and they, and they sort of go, they put all of their money on this idea of sense or like um, the notion that names are sort of just clusters of descriptions. And that becomes a very prevalent theme and a super important grounding for a lot of analytic philosophy in the 20th century so all of this stuff about how names work ends up being super super important because it is one of the things that you need to understand if you're going to evaluate statements um, for their truth value so if you're going to say something like the earth is the third planet from the sun uh, you need to be able to uh, have a a theory about what you mean when you say earth and a theory about what you mean when you say sun so that you can properly evaluate the the truth value of that statement and so paco that kind of goes back to your earlier comment about the way that philosophy of language um is become so important to analytic philosophy in the 20th century because analytic philosophy is is largely about sort of evaluating the the truth value of statements made in a natural language like english right and it, you can't evaluate the a natural language like english yeah
3: okay well did you know that the prankster aka <laughs> oswald loomis oh man who's kind of like a hack version of the joker and the riddler once tried to file a <laughs> copyright on the english language what yes And once he gained legal ownership of the alphabet (laughs) and the English language, Uh the prankster began requiring payment of anyone using the English language. Uh And at first, Superman was unable to do anything about the prankster's (laughs) latest prank. Because he wasn't actually breaking the law. Uh But eventually, Mm -hmm. Superman discovered that the prankster had hired an imposter to replace the registrar at the copyright office. And foiled uh-huh. the prankster's crime.
2: <laughs> this sounds like
1: the most boring. Uh, the prankster
2: plotline ever.
1: This is very similar to the the plotline where Lex Luthor becomes president of the United States. Like, how can Superman fight against the will of the people? Isn't that a similar <laughs> concept? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's got the patent on it, which is a patent or copyright. In this
3: storyline, the prankster has the copyright on the English language.
2: Okay. Okay. I guess that makes sense. He didn't invent it, so he wouldn't have the pat.
3: Right. I mean, right. he didn't
2: write it either, so I don't know how he got the copyright, but okay. Well, illegally, guess...
3: that's how Superman beat him in the end.
2: <laughs> so it was like Superman like go to court for this? Like how does he beat him? No, I think he just punched him in the face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know how to solve this legal dispute. That's my best Superman impersonation. Exactly. I'll b-
3: burn him to ashes with my heat vision. Cause I'm a god. Is that what happened? No, he punched him and took him to jail. Right. He just burned up all of the copyright documents with his laser beam eyes. <laughs> uh, laser beam eyes. Yeah, I think I think officially they're called laser
2: beam eyes. <laughs> what documents, Your Honor? That was my sound okay. effects for Superman eyes.
1: <laughs> all right. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, you were I saying. Have a, I have a quick. I have a quick question, Chad. Yeah uh so you mentioned uh so um the the issue of uh sense and reference when it comes to uh names in the context of natural language of 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 human language does this presuppose yeah. that there's a a non-human language where we can um circumvent the the issues uh of uh that we find in in in, in names in English language would it be a you know a, a manufactured Uh, uh, logical language that could be used to express things without those otherwise pesky concerns?
2: Uh, Well, you know, that's a good question. Um, And there's a complicated uh, (laughs) uh, and uh, sort of long-storied relationship between the philosophy of language and logic and and mathematics. And that's why you kind of, like, it's, it's no accident that you have these guys, like, Russell and Frege and Wittgenstein, who are sort of all working on philosophy of language while they're also working on mathematics and set theory and, um, and logic. And one of the important parts of that project was understanding how to evaluate the truth value of statements in natural languages like English versus how to evaluate uh, the truth value of statements in mathematics or logic, which you know, to your point, marker considered you know distinct from from languages like English. Next question.
1: In uh, uh, one of uh, Douglas Adams' novels, uh, one of the Dirk Gently books, Dirk Gently, the private detective, um, has a a problem he tries to solve, and he sits down, he takes a piece of paper and a pencil, and then uh, thinks about the question of. Of like how to solve the the crime, then uh, just scribbles on the piece of paper, and turns to his uh, to his uh, associate and said like, "Here, I've solved the case." Uh, and he you know just looks at the scribble on the piece of paper and said like, "You know, I now I've got the answer. Now I just need to figure out which language it's written in. So I've turned it into a language <laughs> problem. And we have we have more tools to to, to solve now." Right.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that's. Uh... I think that's basically what, what most of, of philosophy is, is really up to, is something exactly like that. Crimes, you say? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, yes. man. Tell us more about crimes. <laughs> yeah, I
3: guess. Like the type of crime that might be uh, undertaken by the Rainbow Raider, a.k.a. <laughs> Roy G. Bivolo. Uh,
2: wait, yes. say that again? Roy G. Yes. Bivolo?
3: Roy G. Bivolo. These are real supervillains that the creators oh of DC God. Comics have created. The Rainbow DC. Raider.
1: In in recent issues, uh, Rainbow Raider has been renamed Chroma, as in uh, the color palette of uh, you know chrome. Chroma. Uh, yeah, so that's... he he has a slightly cooler <laughs> name now. Not. It's not any. It's not any better. He was once
3: he <laughs> no. a wonderful. He was once a wonderful painter, who is also colorblind. What and. His dad tried to create this device that would let him see colors fully, but instead yeah. created a pair of goggles that, I don't know why, shot beams of light out that could become solid <laughs> objects like physics say light can become, and could also make him invisible and blind his opponents. Uh, and he basically he basically ran around in a rainbow suit and shot lasers out of a big pair of goggles.
2: That was, like, way too complicated for me to understand. He was colorblind, and his dad tried to make him see color and instead made him shoot laser beams that could turn into objects? Um, Yeah. What did I mean, that's a pretty big mistake, right? It's like, hey, I was trying to make it so that you could tell red and green apart, but instead I made it so that you could build a car out of light coming out of your eyeballs. Well, I don't know that he
3: ever made a car. It wasn't like he gave him a green lantern ring. But he did give oh. him a pair of goggles that tried to correct his color blindness, that instead shot color light out of the goggles
2: that could also become solid. It, just like so, so, not like he could construct things out of it, but just that the beams would turn solid. Look, man. You're going to have to go back and read the comics. I can't tell well, did you, you everything do, did, about
3: Rainbow <laughs> Raider.
2: Do you have any um do you know off the top of your head like what vintage this villain is? Most of it is silver age
3: because it's more terrible than the modern stuff, although DC right. has the worst heroes and the worst villains.
2: For the 3 handsome people listening to this podcast who do not know what the silver age is, can you just quickly give a sense of what time that is?
1: It's pre Super Friends cartoon okay <laughs> got it but didn't uh, fantastic four mark the beginning of the silver age sure mark <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> i don't know link in the show notes
2: <laughs> <laughs> mark has like for more than anyone i know mark has the ability to, to like ask a question like in that sort of rhetorical way that he that that is not a rhetorical question, and that he doesn't know the answer to. <laughs> yeah. but, also, but he's just like Mark. <laughs> uh, out of
3: everybody I know, Mark knows he. There's this weird Venn diagram where Mark knows more about comic books than anybody who's never read a comic book, because he just combs <laughs> Wikipedia for comic book uh, facts, even though he's right. never read a comic book.
1: Right, Mark? If you I, never read, read a comic, comic book. book. <laughs> One or two, but I have to, I have to say my, my preferred comic book reading um uh, tool is Wikipedia. <laughs> um,
2: do, Okay, do we have anything more to say about sense and reference or how names work? Has everybody got it? Got it. Thanks to Lois Lane?
1: Yeah, yeah. I know
2: exactly what names
3: mean.
1: <laughs> Socrates, Aristotle, Lois Lane. Got it. Yep, yep. Okay, well, uh, our work here is done. Let's hit the mid-show break.
0: Today's episode of The Adventures of Superman is brought to you by You've Got It All Wrong, a philosophy podcast for handsome people like you. Head over to iTunes now to subscribe. And if you'd like to be part of the show, send in your questions or philosophical conundrums to Questions at net. Now, back to the show.
3: Hey, guys. Do you want to hear about more awesome DC supervillains? Do I have a choice? Well, talk about perfect timing. What about (laughs) the Clock King? His power? (laughs) What? (laughs) Awesome timing. So this is a guy who has zero superpowers. Except he's, like, on time or what? No, that's his... His power, his quote-unquote superpower, although he has no real actual superpowers, is good timing. Like flirtatious timing? Seduction? (laughs) Like comic timing? Or like, what
2: does that mean?
3: (laughs) If any of these types of timing are required to pull off a crime, he's got it. All right? Sometimes he uses clocked-themed gadgetry. But mainly he wears a suit and sometimes has like a clock for a face and just like plans things really well and shows what? up on time
2: <laughs> so so does he like can he like see the future and he knows that like the bank teller is going to be unlocking the vault at eight thirty four a.m and so he's like johnny on the spot or is it just like he, know- he can't like- he definitely can't <laughs> see the future he definitely
3: doesn't know based on precognition that the bank teller is going to open the vault at 8:34 but if he's got like some kind of schedule and he knows based on the plans that the bank has about when the bank vault gets open he's going to be there at
1: 8:34 right okay. punctually <laughs> yeah so if you he, guys just like so if, and he may and he may or may not have a clock for a face
3: <laughs> yeah he depending on what era that he shows up in he may or may not have a clock for a face look if you guys <laughs> want to know why Marvel is crushing it at the box office and DC can't make a good movie with Superman in it, this is why. Because these are the type of people they have building their universe.
2: If there was a Superman movie that had the Clock King in it, I would be lined up around the block on opening night for it. So let me know when that happens and I'll be on time for it.
3: What about this? What about this? The Fiddler. His superpower...
1: (laughs) Shut
3: this, up, the I'm not joking. I Look, we this can do like the a, rest of
2: the... It was just like a typo,
3: and somebody was like, oh, Riddler, Fiddler, oh, Fiddler, yeah. We can do the rest of the show where I give you names, and you've got to guess whether they're real or not, but it's not as fun as just telling you the real ones, because the fiddler has a giant magic fiddle that can hypnotize people and also drives around in a car shaped like a fiddle. <laughs>
2: Uh, Are we going to be able to link to images of this stuff in show notes? Do you think there's an
1: opportunity for for some fan art to Photoshop uh, us three into the fiddle mobile?
2: Yes, that that (laughs) is something that I would pay good money for. Um, Just hit me up at Chad Allen with your fan art of me riding around in a fiddle car. Um, Hey, uh, guys, let's talk about some actual Philosophy or the history of philosophy, or even some people who were philosophers or who had anything to do with philosophy. What is that? Are you okay with that? I guess. Does it sound like a good idea? Okay. So, actually, all kidding aside, I wanted to talk about Frege for a minute. So, during his life, uh, he was number one, an intensely private person, and number two, not that well known. Um, so it wasn't like, Lots of people were writing about him. He didn't have a biographer. He wasn't famous. So he didn't, like, he wasn't in the public eye at all.
3: Yeah. I've heard, like, some, I've I've heard accounts of him teaching where his students said that he never even faced the, yeah, the he classroom. Yeah. Like, he would facing just, facing
2: the blackboard the whole time. Yeah.
3: Yeah. He would write on the blackboard yeah. and face the blackboard the whole time. And
2: yeah, what we know about his reputation is just sort of that he was. You know that that he was kind of a stern sort of like serious person, um, and you know, like a lot of philosophers or thinkers, he did have sort of a a private collection of his manuscripts and letters, like unfinished works um, that were um, that that were put into uh, archives when he died, and then that they were they were in a library um, that was destroyed during World War II. Uh, and um, some uh, fragments of um, his personal manuscripts were, uh, survived the war and were published in I think in 1944. But some of the, his writings from, from that private collection were actually not published and were only discovered later um, by philosopher and historian Michael Dummett. Who spent actually most of his career um studying and writing about frege it so there was a a diary a couple of pages um from a diary entry in nineteen twenty four which was the the year before frege died um he he wrote just a handful of pages in his diary that that were sort of about politics and his his personal beliefs um and when when Dummett later came across these diary diary entries that had never been published and were sort of like withheld in, in the in the publishing of Frege's manuscripts posthumously what Dummett discovered was um and I'll just read a quote here based on his reading of the diary entries he said that Frege was a man of extreme right-wing political opinions, bitterly opposed to the parliamentary system, Democrats, liberals, Catholics, the French, and above all, Jews, who he thought ought to be deprived of political rights and preferably expelled from Germany. Um, And this is interestingly, you know, so sort of news to the philosophical community, at large, because nobody really knew much about Frege's opinions, um uh, you know, sort of about non philosophical matters, but in particular, sort of like a huge blow to Dummett, who. So the quote I just read is from his introduction to a 708 page book that he wrote about Frege's philosophy of language. But ironically, Dummett was almost more well-known for his political activism than he was for his philosophy. He was a huge campaigner against uh, racism in the United Kingdom and anti immigration sentiment in the United Kingdom. Um, He did a lot of work um, around sort of like building fair uh, voting systems and just, and in the sixties he actually kind of like left behind his career as a philosopher to become an activist and then, when he came back to philosophy in the 70s to write this giant tome about Frege, he just he dis- discovered this thing about this guy who he had kind of like been his um, sort of like guiding light from a philosophical perspective. Um, and he said, uh, Dumb it, said that he was deeply shocked because I had revered Frege as an absolutely rational man, if perhaps not a very likable one. I regret that the editors of Frege's manuscripts chose to suppress that particular item so i think that you can sort of like read between the lines there that this is actually like i think a pretty like crushing blow to dummit who had sort of built a lot of his philosophy on top of frege's ideas and um you know sort of like late in his career discovered that that frege was actually a a, a total <laughs> and a racist and an anti-semite
3: it's interesting you know to to look at intellectuals like this that you might come across, you know, in a philosophy class or uh, a biology class or, or anywhere else in life, and their, their work within their discipline is either groundbreaking or interesting or influential, and then to learn about their personal life or their private thoughts on, on other topics or social issues can really kind of like shatter your faith in the work that they had done in, in some other discipline. And obviously, you know, this revel that revelation had that effect on, uh, on Dumit. And I think, you know, we talked a lot about Hume in the last episode and there's writings that, uh, he's credited with that, you know, came out later in his life. And, uh, you know, after his death, you know, that revealed a lot of colonialist, racist sentiment that he yeah. had as well. And I think there's a whole debate or conversation to be had about what you do with the, the work of somebody, the body of work of someone who holds despicable social ideas like that. You know, do we just like throw out all of Frege's work or do we throw out all of Hume's work or do we somehow yeah. put an asterisk on asterisks on their work because of their their personal views but it's 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 definitely a challenging situation
2: when right and especially in this case where where we didn't really even know this about Frege so this this di- so Dummett came across these diary fragments in his research they were not actually ever published until 1994 so it's not like we sort of knew that Frege was an anti-Semite and a racist and we were like all right well but the philosophy is really good we, we are sort of in this position where you know someone who is central to all of the things that um, we we talk about in analytic philosophy and contemporary philosophy it, you know turns out like unbeknownst to us to have been uh, you know to to have been a terrible person and there's so it's tough cuz there's no way to sort of unwind that. Um it's really hard to talk to it's really hard to tell the story of contemporary philosophy without talking about Frege. So it's it it's not as if we could just sort of like realistically speaking go back and sort of like erase him from history even though he's a terrible person. I mean, I have to say like when when I started I I didn't know this about Frege and when I and when we started doing the research for this episode I was like, "Man, should we even do this episode? Like this guy this guy's a terrible person. Like, I, I don't know if we like. I don't. <laughs> I don't want to play some small part in like perpetuating his work. But, but at the end of the day, there's like, there's, there's just no way for us to like tell the story of contemporary philosophy without talking about him. So, I guess this is the. I guess this is the asterisk. I mean, and and like Michael Dummett was actually knighted in 1999 for services quote services to philosophy and to racial justice. So. Like, we're talking about a guy who had, like, a lifelong commitment to things that were sort of, like, diametrically opposed to the views expressed by Frege in this 1924 diary entry. You know, so I think it's interesting just to think about what that must have been like for him on on a personal level, because we're talking about a sort of, like, abstract struggle. (laughs) He he did a lot of work in a lot of different areas like you said and philosophy was only
3: one of them but he also didn't just write one book or or one piece of work on on Frege's original you know thinking yeah. on on the idea of names and the philosophy of language like most of his philosophical body of work was kind of a lifelong analysis and uh extrapolation and continuation of Frege's thinking in his work and then to have to have that kind of revelation come at the end of his career and kind of towards the end of his life yeah it must have been you know i can't imagine what that was like having that uh, that revelation happen after spending so much of your life kind of revering the work of of someone who turned out to be you know have really despicable personal social political views
2: you know it's interesting I hadn't even really thought about this until just now, but, um, you know, Bertrand Russell was also, you know, a a famous um, anti-war campaigner during the Vietnam era era and, you know, a a left leaning political activist. And he was also, I mean, he's basically the guy who made Frege famous um, by, you know, sort of drawing upon his work and really highlighting the work that Frege had done. And I think if we go back and look at the chronology, um, these diaries, these diary entries probably didn't come to light um, during Russell's life or maybe very at the very end of Russell's life. So, you know, it's interesting because he he never probably really had the opportunity to learn about this side of Frege and, and reflect on it um even though he was sort of very similar to dummit in terms of his you know, he's very well very well known as a philosopher who was also a political activist. Right. But yeah, so I mean two people who sort of built their careers on the on the back of Frege's work who, you know, had very progressive worldviews that, you know, would have rejected uh entirely Frege's view of the world. So anyway, I just wanted to um I just wanted to highlight that because it's an interesting piece of history, and I think it's also important to sort of, like, uh, you know, understand who Frege the man was as well as understand his work. I'm sure there's, um, you know, some other stupid bull**** that you guys are waiting to talk about, like... Well, NBC. I mean,
3: before we turn off of that serious note, you know, I think you mentioned, or not just mentioned, we talked quite a bit about Michael Dummett and, and yeah. um, you know, his work outside of... Uh, super kind interesting of extending guy. frege's thinking and all of his work in the areas of social justice and uh, anti-racism and all of the kind of anti-immigration ideas that were prevalent during uh, his time and you know one of the things um, that I came across that I thought was really interesting was this idea of uh, kind of a new way to do democratic, Voting that he was a primary um, thinker and and developer of, which is known as the quota border system. Yeah. Which, you know, in in the U.S., in America, you know, we've got this idea of a democratic voting system where we uh, now basically have two parties that we vote for. Maybe we'll have an independent candidate and we think that uh, the whole country goes out and we vote and everybody's vote counts. And, like, that's the best way to do elections, and we vote for the person we want to win, and, you know, 51% of the vote counts, or I don't, I don't want to get into the electoral college, but, like, majority wins, and the, you know, the, the nation is spoken, and we've, we've got our, our, our best candidate. Well, I think when you look at the way that you can do Democratic voting, and you look at something like the quota border system... It's really interesting because the way that that system works is basically not providing just a binary option where you can vote for one person, you can vote for person A or person B, but saying uh, there should be a lot of different options. And if there's five different candidates, you can actually vote for all five. You just rank them and that your number one vote gets more points than your number five vote. And that also that it isn't. That system isn't just about providing the ability to vote for more than one person. It actually encourages you to vote for more than one person because there are some systems where you can say there's five candidates and if you want, you can vote for more than one of them, but those systems don't weight the ranking of your votes. So you could vote for just one person. You can say, I'm only going to vote for, let's say in the U.S. we had more than just the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Let's say we had three other parties. Well, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party would probably push you towards just voting for their party. So I would go to the ballot. I'm a registered Democrat. I'm just going to vote Democratic, and I'm going to get one point for my Democratic vote. In the quota border system, it encourages you to vote and rank more than one candidate by saying if you vote for one – if you only vote for one candidate, that candidate gets one point. But if there's five candidates – and you vote for your number one candidate and then also rank the other four candidates in your order of preference, your number one candidate gets five points, your number two candidate gets four points, your number three candidate gets three points, and so on. So it actually provides a way to encourage you to vote for and rank more than one candidate, which means if you get 51% of the vote, you don't win. It means that everyone is encouraged to look at the spectrum of ideas out there and rank that spectrum of ideas in order of their preference so that you get a more, uh like, a representative input on either the ideas that you're voting for in, like, a referendum or the candidates that you're voting for in a pool of candidates. Yeah. And I think it's a really, really interesting and kind of, like, If you grow up in a system like we have in the U.S. in modern politics where it's super polarized and winner takes all and there isn't any middle ground, it's a system that actually encourages people to find commonalities uh, purely based on the way that the voting works. And after reading about it, man, I, I just I personally really wish we had this in the U.S.
2: Yeah, and I mean it's used, it it is used in a few places. Um, and and Mark, this is interesting trivia for trivia for you because it's actually used in the the Republic of Nauru, which is uh, which gained independence from your home country of Australia in 1968. Uh, good, good, good on them. <laughs> um and uh, and and they uh, so the, they gained independence from Australia in 1968 um and uh, they they sort of used the Australian system of voting um in the sort of early days of their independence but since 1971 actually until the present day they use uh, a variant of this uh of this Borda system that was developed by Michael Dummett so, yeah, I, super, super interesting guy and such, like such a weird irony that such an amazingly like progressive thinker spent most of his career um, on, on the work of someone who was, you know, not progressive at all.
1: Yeah, just, just to follow up, I'd also recommend um, a, a great video by CGP Gray on uh, on these various voting systems. And he uh, does a great job of illustrating the pros and cons of, of many of them, including including this one. Um, And on the topic of uh, uh, working with people who have major contributions to a field, who have, um, let's say, uh, indiscreet uh, histories that that make them like less than uh, positive role models for the the world at large. Um, Are you guys familiar with uh, Werner von Braun? Oh, yeah. The uh, famous Nazi scientist um, who, uh, after the Second World War, and his uh, work on the the V1 and V2 rockets was instrumental in the U.S. space program. We couldn't have uh, launched rockets without this particular Nazi scientist. And not only was he was it very well recognised that he was a, a, a staunch Nazi throughout his life. Um, uh, what wasn't also broadcast to the public was that he was a devout uh, Satanist and uh, regularly practiced <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, satanic rituals. On uh, NASA premises, in the same way that you could go to your temple or <laughs> your church in any large uh, uh, corporate environment. There was like
2: a dedicated, like Satanism meditation yeah. room at the NASA. Yeah, headquarters he, he or practiced <laughs> he practiced naked sex magic
1: <laughs> on the weekends while you know what? in between launching uh, the Mercury program. Man, is this? A, did you and
2: Paco arrange this as some segue to like a weird <laughs> DC supervillain? Can you like Paco? Can you riff on this with a super villain? Uh, I don't have
3: anything quite that crazy. Um, but I do have, uh, you know, just kind of uh, uh extending, just pulling out of the hat. extending maybe from the Nazis to the to, to the communists and and, and the Cold yeah. War area. I do have Egg Foo, who uh, oh not only God. was a Chinese well, this also <laughs>
2: like gets back to the racism theme, I guess. Yeah, no, oh
3: oh oh, it'll yeah, big time. Not only was Egg Fu a Chinese communist seeker agent, he was also, and I you not the DC Comics creators came up with this, a giant egg with a Fu Manchu who spoke <laughs> what? in who spoke in the most racist manner that you could possibly scribe onto a comic book page. Uh, um, his, su- okay, his superpowers? superpowers.
2: Wait, I'm just yeah, okay. He was always perfectly cooked.
3: Uh, basically, he could use his Fu Manchu as a lasso. <laughs>
2: what? <laughs> what?
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, if, you've got, if you think these are dumb ideas, please send your mail to, I don't know, feedback at dccomics.com. I don't know. Not us, because
1: I did not create this crazy thing. At Paco thing. Allen.
2: <laughs> if you think Foo Man, shoot, what's his name? Fu, his name's Egg Foo. Egg Foo. Egg Foo. Oh, if you think Egg Foo is a racist comic book villain, send your hate mail to at Paco Allen. <laughs> no, no, because you do. <laughs> because <laughs> and,
3: you do. Kid yes. low Lomane.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Please, I beg you,
3: think that Egg <laughs> Foo is a racist thing uh, and don't send me your hate mail. I didn't create it. <laughs>
2: That's so crazy. When when was that? When's that from? Do you know? Like, I guess that sounds like it's probably like from. I think that's Cold War era. Yeah.
3: Oh man. What about the sports um,
2: master? The what? His superpower?
3: He can, you know, he's good at sports and can use sports stuff. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe By javelins? Yeah, no, no, pretty... no, no, no. <laughs> That'd be no, way too cool. Maybe he's got a tennis racket and he'll hit an exploding tennis ball at you.
1: Uh, sounds like Green Arrow's uh, punching bag arrow. Sportsmaster.
3: <laughs> um, I don't even, what does he look like? Uh, well, there were two of them. Uh, the first Oops. one uh, was Crusher Crack, who that's his name before he takes on the sportsmaster mantle. <laughs> His name this is the first time anyone has had a cooler name before they came became a superhero right. or a supervillain right um uh and and then there was another guy who was
2: Victor Grove who yeah he's good at football uh and Are you possessed- telling me that the DC writers thought that Sportsmaster was such an amazing villain that he appeared like with such frequency that he had to be like reincarnated.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm telling you that and and if you think that's dumb, I'm going to I'm going to follow that up with the fact that Clock King also had two different people, two different personas what? that became Clock King. They thought Clock King and uh Sportsmaster were so awesome that people uh, other people needed to reprise the role, roles of those
2: supervillains. Anyway, uh, if you were h- hoping that uh, something terrible would happen to Gottlob Frege because he was such a dick, um, I kind of forgot about this little story, which may um scratch that itch for you, which is that he um, so I, I like I, I think I alluded to this earlier, or said this earlier, like he did a lot of work in um mathematics and and logic, and he spent. A decade um working on a, a giant uh two volume book uh called the basic laws of mathematics and when he was finishing up the second volume and he was literally like looking at the proofs before it went to press and he got this letter from bertrand russell that was like oh hey i, I read your uh volume uh one on mathematics and uh there's this paradox I developed that I I think you should know about that pretty much destroys the entire thing. And so Frege had to like, like quickly like pen this note for the appendix of volume two to try to address this paradox. And he didn't. And he spent basically the rest of his career trying to address and resolve this paradox with, so with this one letter that Bertrand Russell kind of like dashed off to him, you know, he kind of like, torpedoed frege's entire mathematics and logic project and frege never really recovered from that as a philosopher did not he sign it take that racist (laughs) no i mean i'm sure he would have if he had known at the time that that frege was such a dick
1: was he so bad that he had to be reprised by another uh uh, racist (laughs) philosopher under the same name of frege maybe a few issues later (laughs)
3: oh man i don't I can't imagine anything more embarrassing than that, other than maybe be defeated by Kite Man, whose (laughs) superpowers consist of flying on a kite, using a kite as a weapon, and breaking other villains
2: out of prison with a kite. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think, but, so wait, he's just really good at flying kites, and he can fly on a kite? Yeah, I mean, he's basically got a hand glider. You know what, I feel like I could be, like, without much work, I could be, like, a DC super villain. Like, I could, like, learn to fly a kite, I could be on time, and I could learn some copyright law, and I would be, like, a unstoppable force in the dc universe
3: no man you're you're right? working too hard at it your <laughs> let's just go super simple your dc yeah. comic super villain alter ego is the philosopher and <laughs> you confuse superman with philosophical riddles that yeah. stop yeah. him in his tracks <laughs> and he's a superman superman's got to like stop and think about this philosophical paradox before he can yep. make the right decision and he can't so he's just like stuck just like he just right. like he was with the puzzler trying to figure <laughs> out copyright law
2: right well i guess i have something to look forward to if this podcast doesn't work out i can spend my days thwarting superman
3: or i think writing dc comics because apparently they the worst writers because <laughs> i could do it in my planet sleep, ever seen yeah
2: <laughs> jesus all right i think we um does anybody have anything else that they need to get off their chest about not to... unless you want to hear about polka dot man oh my god didn't we already <laughs> talk about somebody with a i got I or crazy quilt i want to hear what mark has to say probably not about super villains
1: it isn't but I'm sure I'm sure there's some there's going to be a tie back at the end of, of this um, I was looking at the subject of names and the names that we give ourselves and the names we give our children and uh, I, I found a little collection of uh, odd uh, baby names um, uh, are you aware that um, uh, recently there was a, a child born who was given the legal first name of ESPN Um <laughs> ESPN, ESPN Montana Real, so you know it's a real name, the last name is is Real, was uh, was given to a, 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 a couple's fourth child. Um, in uh, May 2002, a 26-year-old mom christened her fourth child Ikea um, after never actually visiting an Ikea but just seeing right. it on a name tag of a, a piece of furniture. Um, there's been a trend to name children after luxury brands to give them a head start in life. So there's a... You know, the idea of, uh, you know, uh, Porsche or Mercedes or yeah. even Lexus. Yeah. Um, and there's also been i uh, I'm a... not sure that really gives them a leg up in life, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, a, a man in Egypt uh, 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 named his uh, daughter, quite uh, notably, you may have seen this in the news in 2011, uh, the name of Facebook uh, to honor <laughs> the, uh, the website's <laughs> role in the Egyptian revolution.
2: Jeez, oh, this is my daughter Facebook and my son MySpace
1: <laughs> well they, they uh, it was worn up by an Israeli news source who, who uh, noted that uh, Lior and uh, Walt Adler uh, a happy couple of a bouncing baby girl um, named her not not Facebook but they named her after the like button her name uh, is like Adler after the Facebook <laughs> button that we all love.
2: that's gonna be so hard for. Her. what's your name like Adler <laughs> <laughs>
1: And uh, uh, the, the Jameson family, uh, one step further, just this year, uh, welcomed uh, to their family uh, uh, their son. Hashtag. Hashtag Jameson.
3: <laughs> I feel like <laughs> there's a real big crossover between these terrible real-world human names that people have given their kids and the DC supervillain creation process. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I see where you're going. I might name my kid Ikea.
3: I'm gonna name mine Doctor Spectro, <laughs>
2: <laughs> to give it a real leg up in life. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs>
3: now all you can need I, to do is create a prism machine I pre- that can, uh, <laughs> or, or I just don't know, be on time. influence people's psychology. Can or... I
1: ask? Uh, wasn't there some interesting names, uh, Chad, that 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 your father wanted to name you? No, I don't know what you're talking about.
2: We're gonna look. We we're, we we have been. You... No, no, no. We've been uh, planning for some time to have an episode. Uh, guest starring Gordie Allen, and when he comes on the show, you can ask him if he smoked weed with Edmund Gettier, and you <laughs> you can ask him uh, if he ever had any stupid names that that he was going to give his kids. Um, the answer to that and, second and, one know, is yes.
1: Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> Paco's given me a couple of them at length, and they're, they're ah. hilarious. All right. Well,
2: I, I don't want to steal his thunder, though, uh, for for that episode, which I'm very much looking forward to. But I think I think we should leave off there. Uh, looking forward to that episode with Gordie Allen and uh, wrap up this particular show.
0: Will Superman defeat Dr. Spectro? Will Paco stop talking about terrible DC comic villains? Don't fail to listen, fellows and girls. Be sure to tune in. Same time, same station for the next episode of You've Got It All Wrong! Oh, and follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search for you Got It All Wrong. And follow the hosts on Twitter at Chad Allen, at Paco Allen, and at
1: M. Sanders.